Uh, most of you aware, I used to work for MMM and uh, AIM, which is um, Australian Indigenous Ministries. And they use the term faith missionaries. I don't like that term, but that, that's what they use. It's where you work, but you, you rely on supporters. You rely on people to provide for your finances. I don't know if you've ever been in that situation where you've had to rely on the goodness of others to make ends meet. But, you know, a lot of times there was, like when Michelle and I first joined MMM, there was a lot of guilt attached with how we felt about receiving donations from people. And, you know, we got donations from people who we knew weren't that wealthy. We had a lady in our church and she had MS and she was on this minimal pension, but she gave us $5 every month. And we, she used to cry to us sometimes because she wished she could give more. And it used to sadden us and we used to actually feel guilty. And I can remember when I first started working for M&M and uh, I wanted to go on a holiday or if we wanted to do something, I used to write to our supporters and say, we're doing this. And they used to say to me, why are you doing that? You don't need to write to us. But if you've ever been in the situation where you have to rely on the goodness of others to make ends meet, you'll know sometimes it's not a good place to be in. I actually saw a worse place. I remember I used to be a, um, a youth worker or a street worker in uh, Adelaide and we used to work with homeless people. And I used to see people that were so poor that they had to sort through people's leftovers in order to survive. Sorry, something's come up on my... <laughs> Sorry, I've got something from Michelle on my phone. It says, I love you, you're doing a great job. Um, no. <laughs> As I said, I used to be a street worker in Adelaide working with homeless people. And sadly, I used to see this all the time in our cities and our suburbs. People that would go through garbage bins looking for food or something that they could sell just to help make ends meet. I don't know if you've ever been here. I remember we brought a group over from Sherberg. Um, we brought a group of Aboriginal people and we brought them to Melbourne. And we actually did this in the Melbourne city. We took them through um, the church that Tim Costello used to be involved in. And um, they do a street ministry and they took our Aboriginal people and just introduced them. Well, you know, this is even worse in third world countries. I'm sure you've all seen on TVs entire families of people who live on dumps and they have to sort through the last remains of anything that are no value at all to them. In Israel, there were poor people just like that everywhere else. In fact, in Deuteronomy 15, Israel is told there will always be poor people among you. Verse 11 says, there will always be poor people in this land. Jesus repeats this again in Matthew 26, 11. He says, there will always be poor among you. In Israel's time, outside of being a leper and kept away from people or being a beggar because you're physically unable to work, the lowest sort of existence would be to be so poor that you had to sort through people's leftovers to survive. Well, do you know, as we get to the beginning of Ruth chapter 2, it seems this is the very position that Naomi and Ruth are in. They are in a position where they need to rely on leftovers from other people. Ruth 2.2 opens with this. And Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, I'm not sure if you've ever stopped and thought about this, but doesn't it seem strange that the names given in this opening verse are strange? What do I mean? Well, here he still calls Ruth, Ruth the Moabite. I mean, we're a fair way into the story now. 
We know who Ruth is. So why not just call her Ruth? Why does he still write Ruth the Moabite? Then he also calls Naomi, which means pleasant of the Lord. Do you remember the end of chapter 1? Do you remember, did she want to be called Naomi? No, she wanted her name changed. But he didn't change it. She wanted to be called Mara, which meant bitter. So why use these two names? Is it important or is it just the flow of the writer? Well, it's taught by some commentators, the writer has carefully selected and still uses the names very deliberately because they keep the story alive. The names reflect the truth of the situation that they are currently in. Last week I said our scriptures do a wonderful job in revealing in our lives where we were, where we are, and where we're headed. Well, that's exactly what the writer has done here in these opening verses. Continuing to call Ruth the Moabite is a cultural expression. A Moabite is who she is. It is where she's from. Israel now is where she is. That's where she is now. The privilege and customs of that land is what she's looking forward to participate in. That's where she's heading. Keeping Naomi, Naomi. Well, that's her original name. That's where she's from. She wanted to be called Mara because she was bitter and thought God was against her. That's where she sees herself now. But the writer doesn't call her Mara. The writer continues to call her Naomi because that means pleasant of the Lord. That's where she's heading. So in the writer using these names, he's carefully leading us down a path of beauty. He's keeping us focused towards that which is wonderful. So Ruth the Moabite asked Naomi, not Mara, if she could go into the fields to pick up leftover grain. Doesn't sound that great, does it? I mean, going into someone's field to pick up leftovers almost is equivalent of those modern-day dumpster divers that I talked about at the beginning. A person who looks for scraps in a world of abundance. But let me tell you, it wasn't like that at all. Throughout history, the poor have been oppressed, even in the land of Israel. But thankfully, the value of a person wasn't determined by their wealth in God's eyes. Nor was poverty a sign of something being outside of God's favour or God's grace. Instead, God anticipated it and graciously made provisions and laws for the poor. And one of them is a law called gleaning. The word glean that is used comes from the French word and it simply means to gather ears of corn or grain. Gleaning from a biblical perspective is something that was specifically authorised under the law of Moses. It is found in several passages, but the main one is Deuteronomy 24, 19 to 22, and explains this. When you reap your harvest in your field and, and, and forget a sheaf in the field, you should not go back and get it. It shall be left for the stranger, the fatherless and the widow that your Lord your God may bless you in all your work of your hands. When you beat your olive trees, you shall not go over the boughs again. It shall be left for the stranger, the fatherless and the widow. When you gather the grapes of your vineyard, you shall not glean it afterwards. It should be left for the stranger, the fatherless and the widow. And you shall remember that you're a slave in the land of Egypt. Therefore, I command you to do this. That is the command of gleaning. Sorry, I have to drink. The existence of this gleaning law was proof that God was a caring God. 
The law showed God's concern for the poor among his people. Do you know, I remember when I studied Old Testament in college, our lecturer said this was something that never was never preached. Caring for the poor wasn't something that they did in this day. And so for God to take this and do this was setting up a whole new covenant, was setting up a whole new way of life. More than that, this law showed that God cared not only directed to the wealthy, that God's care was not only directed to the wealthy, but also to the people outside of Israel. You will notice three times it states this law was designed for the stranger, the fatherless and the widow. That's good news for Ruth because she's all three of those. She's a stranger because she's a foreigner. She's a Moabite. She was by oath united to Naomi, whose husband was dead, and so she's fatherless. And her husband was dead as well. She's a widow. Even though in some ways her desire to glean is a self-degrading act, an act that would reflect the state of hers and Naomi's true position, it was right for Ruth to ask if she can go and glean. Why? Because in every respect of the law, she and Naomi were ex the exact kind of people that God directed and mandated this law for. The word Ruth uses is, can I go and find favour? She wants to go and see if she can find favour in this law. The word favour that she uses means grace. She is going to find grace in law. Naomi knows that Ruth's words were pure and her actions are necessary to sustain the both of them. So we're told, Naomi says, for her to go. The request by her to go and glean, for me, reveals her hardworking and faithful character. She knows enough about God's law to know that gleaning was the way that God would provide for them. As we just read, whenever God's people reaped a harvest, they were to consider the poor and leave the gleanings for them to come and pick up. It is fair, after all because God was the one who gave him the harvest. So he had every right to tell them how and what to do with what they had. Ruth obviously understood God's faithfulness in this law, but she didn't just know it and understand it, she acted on it. She knew one thing, that she could go and do this. Do you know what I get from this? When we go through this book, you will notice Ruth's a bit of a go-getter. I don't think Ruth was the kind of woman that would remain idle for very long. She worked hard in her time, in her life, and that things may have looked and seemed awful, but she was not a complainer. She just went about her business and went to work. We already got a glimpse of this kind of character in chapter one. Remember her plea to Naomi? She's going to be faithful and loyal to her until she dies. Now it comes out of Glen. In the gleaning field, she will have to trust God. She will have to put her faith in hands and trust that he will lead her. In this, we can see Ruth's humility and great love for Naomi, as well as her willingness to spare no hardship in order to take care of herself and in order to take care of her mother-in-law. She was willing to go into the field. Since Ruth believed that God loved her and would provide for her, she set out to find a field in which she could glean. This was a complete act of faith because being a stranger, she didn't know who owned various parcels of land. She didn't know how the grounds were made up. There were boundaries for each markers, but that was it. Furthermore, as a woman and an outsider, she was especially vulnerable and she had to be careful where she went. But Ruth's character was to trust the Lord and his promises. And as I said, why not? Because she knew her position. 
Deuteronomy 10.18 says, He defends the cause of the fatherless and the widow and loves the alien, giving them food and clothing. Again, Ruth was a poor widow. She was an alien and she was fatherless. Therefore, she had every right to look to God for help and provision because that's what he promised to those kind of people. To live by faith means to take God at his word and act on it. And that's exactly what she's done. She talks about going out and finding favour in someone else's eyes. As I said, that favour is the word grace. When Ruth set out that morning to glean in the fields, she was looking for someone who would show her grace. Grace is favour bestowed upon someone who doesn't deserve it and never can earn it. So she sets out. She finds some harvesters in a field, so she gleans there. Sounds great. Now, depending on your translation, you will see it says things like, as it turned out, or as it happened, she happened by chance, she just happened to end up a field that belonged to Boaz. All of these make it sound that it's some kind of chance or luck that she ended up in this field. Now, if you've ever been involved with fields and farms, I guess you could say, wow, what luck. Most times when you look at farming land, all you see is one big, long, wide, expensive field. I mean, if I said to you, I want you to go to Tagulawa and go to Harris's back paddock, none of you would have any idea what I'm talking about. They live on this dirt road and all you see is fields this side and fields this side. You'll see fences, but that's about it. You have no idea. And so whenever you meet someone who owns a farm, one of the first questions you normally say to them is, where's your boundary? And they all know. They all know where their boundaries are and it is separated by a fence. But if you look at it without knowledge, you have no idea. You won't know, have no idea, is that their property? Is that their property? The land in Ruth's day would have been the same. The land was divided by stones and that was it. But she wouldn't know who owned any land. So to come and end up in the land of Boaz instead of any other land does seem like a bit of a chance. Think about it. We're not told, but did she walk up to the first land that she saw? Did she walk out and saw, there's a land, I'm going to go there? Or were they the only ones that had workers? Definitely not, because we're told at the end, this was harvest time. She probably even walked past fields that she never saw, never knew existed. She could have ended up at any field, but she didn't. She ended up at this particular piece of land that was owned by Boaz. What a truly remarkable occurrence. What are the odds? Well, let me tell you what the odds are. The odds are much more than chance allow. What seems like chance is much more than that. You know, our scriptures are full of stories like this. I love them. Moses' mums take Moses, puts him in a basket, sends him off. Pharaoh's daughter finds him and thinks, I've got to get help. Goes and gets the mother. Joseph's life ends up in prison, but also he um, a first man under David. Mordecai helps Esther save the Jews. Nehemiah just happened to be the cupbearer for the king and that allowed him to fix the wall. What we see and read here aren't just luck. It's not just chances. It's an obvious shaping of a path put before them, a path that someone is directing their every step. This is true. There is no chance or luck in any of these stories. And here's an interesting fact for you. Do you know there is no Hebrew 
or Greek word for the meaning of chance, luck or coincidence. You won't find one. That's because no one in biblical times saw the happening of their life as chance, luck or coincidence. It was all planned and guided by someone. That's the way they saw it. The correct interpretation of this is that it had happened, that she ended up in the field of Boaz. That someone is the unseen hand of the Lord, guiding them so his plans and purpose would come about. We might think it's chance, fortune or luck, but God views the events as carefully designed and he brings them to his good end. His direction, even in the smallest events, link together and they form his perfectly planned. What we read about here, Ruth ended up in the field of Boaz, is exactly the same. It's not chance. It's not, well, how lucky she was. In Ruth's first day of gleaning to provide for her and Naomi, God directed her steps. Little steps in Bethlehem leading to immensely greater things. The message of these first seven verses is this. It is no accident. It was nothing to do with luck where she ended up. Everything that happened, happened by the hand of God. Ruth put her trust in the guiding hand of God and he led her into the right field. Ruth knew her position. She was a woman, a poor widow and an alien. Ruth could have no claims on anyone. She was at the lowest run of the social ladder. She needed someone to show her favour. She needed grace in this law. Thankfully, God was directing her little feet. He put her in the field intended for his glory and for her good. It is here in this field she finds grace. It is here Boaz enters the story. The channel of that grace and favour God used for Ruth was Boaz. I think it's important we try and understand as much of this man as we can because he seems to be the most important man in this book and he's also the man in the book who points us to the most important man who ever lived. The name Boaz means strength or in him is strength. In most translations um, at the beginning of this chapter, Boaz is introduced of a man of a great wealth, a man from the same direct family as Naomi's dead husband. The term wealthy man here doesn't simply mean a man of riches. The term wealthy man describes a man who is rich in all his ways. The phrase has been translated as a man of standing, an influential man, a worthy man, a man of outstanding character, a mighty man of strength, a mighty man of wealth, a powerful man. All of these are implied in this understanding of the word wealth. When you put all these together, the idea which seems to be implied of him is this. He is a strong and substantial prince of a man in power, authority, riches, honour and virtue. Or to put it another way, he is the type of Christ. I find it interesting that we are told that he comes from Bethlehem. This must strike a chord in us Christians. If Boaz is a picture to Christ, which he is, he gets the same title as that that Micah gives Jesus Christ. He's a man from Bethlehem. The first words we hear Boaz speak in this story, are to his workers. We're told, he says, the Lord be with you. Now that may not sound like much of a greeting, a bit like us saying, good morning. However, when you consider the true meaning of this word, it brings it to its fullness. 
the words, the Lord be with you, is equivalent of him saying, may the Lord stand with you, guide you, protect you, uphold you, strengthen you and heap upon you all the activities that are good and desirable for you to receive from him. That's what it means. Remember, he's talking to his workers. This is what he's saying to his workers. And in response to that, they reply, the Lord bless you. The meaning of this response is like them saying, may the Lord give you abundance, joy, contentment, fruitfulness, strength, and many other blessings. Now, it's not sure if these greetings in this time were normal. They're not sure if every farmer did this, if it was a common practice in Israel, or was it special to Boaz? Either way, the words of Boaz here are exceptional. By tying the name of the Lord in with blessings indicates a desire for the person to receive all the Lord chose to enhance in his workers' lives. They reflect a sense of friendliness and care that goes beyond one of our bosses saying, hello, how you going, or g'day mate. Boaz was concerned about his workers and wanted them to enjoy the blessings of the Lord. How good it is to know that God has good people living in bad times. If we were to look back at the time of Judges, we might all conclude that the righteous had perished from all the earth. There was no one who would stand up. But praise God, there were still people like Boaz in those days. People who knew the Lord and sought to obey his will. Then we're told the story begins because he sees Ruth. Verse 5 is the first verse that includes both Boaz and Ruth together. No sooner had Boaz greeted his workers and then his eye caught the presence of a stranger in the field and a lovely stranger at that. I get the impression that when he saw her, it was love at first sight because from this point on, Boaz focused his interest on Ruth and not on the harvest. Earlier, Boaz was described of a man of great wealth. However, he was lacking a wife. That was one wealth he didn't have. So you know what kind of man he was? He was ruthless. Sorry. But don't worry. That's about to change. In this verse, we find Ruth living up to the second part of her name. Remember we said the first part of Ruth meant friend or companion. We saw how she lived that out in chapter 1 by clinging to Naomi as a permanent friend and companion. The second meaning of Ruth is beauty or looker. The fulfilment of this is seen here in verse 4 as Boaz notices her among the other workers, indicating her beauty which was noticeable. She is a looker. This young woman had beauty which had caught his eye. Boaz sees her and the strings of his heart are pulled. Because Ruth's radiant beauty caught the eye of Boaz, he tactfully went to his servant who was in charge of the reapers and asked the question. I say tactfully because in Boaz going to the chief reaper, it shows an attitude of considering his reputation, a reputation he didn't want to tarnish by asking just anyone about this girl. He's being careful and trusting in going to his chief reaper to maintain his dignity. This is something he may not get if he asks the same question to one of the assistant reapers. We can also see his tact in the wording of the question he asked. He doesn't ask what most of us normal blokes would ask when we see a pretty girl. When we see a pretty girl, chances are we would ask, 
Who is that young woman? Who is she? But if you notice, that's not what Boaz asked. He asked, whose young woman is this? Even to his servant in charge, he's being careful with his words. To ask who is that young woman would show a direct and personal interest in her and it would be wrong. Rather, he asked, who does she belong to? Whose young woman is this? What family does she belong to? Whose daughter is she? Whose, whose, whose? And I guess what he was really wanting to know is who's her husband? Because heaven forbid or perish the fourth that she's married. The chief reaper informs Boaz she's a young Moabite woman who came back with Naomi. There's those two words again. Though he knows who she is indirectly, he doesn't give her a name. To him, she's just another foreigner who's come to pick up what's been left over on the fields. She's just someone who's come to glean. Despite noting that she's just a foreigner, the chief reaper is careful to tell Boaz of her good qualities. She says Ruth is polite, she's humble, and she's of good character. The word please that Ruth uses in, when asking is the word I pray. This was a respectful way to ask, can you glean in your field? And he said she arrives early and works steadily right up until the present moment, taking only short rests in the house. Do you know, this may seem insignificant. However, most commentators say it's not. The fact that she took rest in the house shows another point of care by Boaz concerning his people. Because of the intense heat of the sun in Israel, a shelter was set up by him for the workers to take a break in away from the heat and rest their backs. The fact that we're told Ruth took advantage of this, which means even the gleaners were treated with respect and allowed to go into the house to rest and go under shelter. Again, Boaz is showing grace in the law. Boaz had proven himself to be a decent man, a boss and a follower of the Lord. Ruth had proven herself to be polite, humble and a hardworking person. If you've never ever read the story, chances are you can already guess where it's heading. Boaz will not remain ruthless for very much longer. No one really mentions the time difference from the end of chapter one to the beginning of this gleaning time. But whatever the difference is, what a difference this time has made. Naomi was bitter against God and thought her life meant nothing to no one. But Naomi had no idea that God was what God was about to do. As I said last week, isn't it great that God we follow is a God of new beginnings? Both Ruth and Naomi were about to become part of a plan. They were involved in God's eternal plan. The world fulfilled the promises through Abraham that his seed would bring blessing to the whole world. Ruth's story begins with the death of a husband but will end with the birth of a baby. Her tears will be turned into triumph. Ruth will be willing for God to have his way with her. So God began this gracious work in Ruth, Naomi and Boaz. So there you have it, the beginning of a great love story. But as I always ask, so what? For me, it's not just about the love story. We shouldn't read these verses and go goo goo gaga over the love story. We should marvel at the overruling providence of God in their lives. We read this to know and see how God worked in their situation. The Lord led Ruth to Boaz and in him she found everything she needed. Everything and more. 
and Boaz found the same in Ruth. We read these passages and this book to see and know how God works in people's lives. Well, guess what? You are people, every one of you. We can read and take great comfort knowing the way God worked in the life of Naomi, Ruth and Boaz, he will continue to work in yours. How about your life? Do you see things in your life that are serious events that appears to be luck or chance or coincidence? Let me promise you they're not. Nothing in your life is a coincidence. Nothing in your life happens by luck or chance. When we commit our lives to the Lord, what happens to us happens by the way of appointment, not accident. Proverbs 16.9 says, In his heart a man plans his course, but the Lord determines his steps. A big trap we can fall into is we can look um, at the way God works in our lives. We can focus on our circumstances. Have you ever thought or said to yourself, Romans 8 says, God works all things together for the good of those who love him. Well, I love him, but it just seems my life's going down the toilet. I mean, I haven't had so much trouble or heartache till I started following God. We're not meant to look at our circumstances. Before God changes our circumstances, he wants to change our hearts. That's the journey that Ruth and Boaz are on and Naomi. If our circumstances change for the better, without changing our hearts, we remain the same. Then we become worse. God doesn't want that for any of us. Ruth was still a poor widow and an alien when she entered that field. But God was about to create a whole new relationship with her that would completely alter her life and completely alter her circumstances. When God works in your life, be prepared. God's purpose in our destiny is not to make us comfortable. His purpose is to make us conformable. Conform to the image of his son. Christ-like character is God's divine goal for each of his children. God's divine working in our life is both a delight and at times a mystery. God is constantly working with us, in us and for us, accomplishing his gracious purposes of making us more like his son every day. We pray, we seek his will, we make decisions and sometimes make mistakes but it is God who orders events and guides his willing children. Ruth just happening to come into the field of Boaz was no chance or luck. It was God's design and God's care. Everything Ruth needed was found in Boaz. As you've listened today, does Ruth remind you of someone, someone who's poor and alien and bankrupt? Well, it should, because it should remind you of you, us, spiritually. Just as Boaz saw Ruth in her state and took notice of her, in our desolate state, God has taken notice of us walking in his field. It wasn't our beauty that drew, us, drew him to us, but here's the incredible thing. Once he chose us, he gave us his beauty. Blessed are those who pour in spirit. Do you know what that means? Blessed are those who realise what they bring to the table of God. Absolutely nothing. We are poor in spirit. We can't bring anything. And yet there we are walking through God's fields and he sees us, he takes us, and because of his son, brings us together and gives us his beauty. 
Just as Boaz had everything Ruth needed to find grace in her state, Jesus has everything we need to find grace in ours. God knew what he was doing in the life of Ruth back then and he still knows what he's doing in your life today. Take heart, take courage. If you want God to work in our lives and our circumstances and accomplish his great purposes, the challenge for us is to trust him regardless of where he leaves. Do you know, sometimes you may think life's going backwards. And I, I used to do this. But you put an arrow. Even if you think your life's going backwards, if there's a cross in that backwards, guess what? You're going in the right direction. The challenge for us is to trust him regardless of where he leads. Then the challenge for us is to see that God is behind the scenes working for our best. When we do this, we end up in a beautiful love story. The story of an incredible change, loving father in heaven who brings hope, grace and joy to no hopers on earth. That is what the book of Ruth is all about. I trust and pray that as we continue this story, you get excited because none of us deserve to be sitting here enjoying the goodness of God in our lives. I think I've shared before, there's a great theologian in Adelaide, he's dead now, called Jeffrey Bingham. And his favourite line was, if God gave us the love we deserved, we'd all be dead. But he doesn't. He's a God of grace. Just as Boaz came and saved Ruth, God has done exactly the same for us through his son. That's the message that we're going to get out of this book. That's the exciting thing. And that's what helps us go out and face our world every day. May God bless you and keep you strong.